Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we're discussing week two of the 2017 general election campaign and the surprising revival of Conservative Scotland. I'm delighted to be joined by Henry Mance, the FT's political correspondent, political commentators David Torrance and Miranda Green, as our poster Matt Singh. Thank you all for joining. So the British general election campaign entered its exciting second week and, well, not much has happened. The Conservatives continued to promise strong and stable leadership, warned against a coalition of chaos. Labour talked about building a million new houses. UKIP launched its campaign and the Tories got into a row over tax. Henry Mans, do you want to begin by giving us your highlight of this campaigning week? I think it was perhaps the UKIP leader, Paul Nuttall, really struggling to work out whether he even wanted to be a candidate in this general election. UKIP has all sorts of problems from organisation to money to messaging, but not even coming out and saying which seat you're going to stand for is probably not the way to kick off a campaign. Miranda, what's been your highlight of this week? Well, possibly low light for the Labour Party, which was a poll that came out at the beginning of the week in Wales, which showed potentially a historic swing away from the Labour Party in not just one of their great heartlands, but arguably the crucible and nursery of the modern Labour Party. So if the Valleys vote Tory, as they may do in June, that will be an extraordinary setback, even if it's not quite as catastrophic as what happened to Labour in Scotland in 2015. And Matt? I think my highlight is actually getting polls again and actually getting lots and lots of data. No, I mean, we, we've had lots of um, interesting stuff. Obviously, the picture in the Great Britain wide polls seems to have suggested by the fact that there's an election campaign on, people are thinking about the election, minds are being focused, and it does seem that that's had an effect on voting intention. There has been changes. As Miranda said, this poll in Wales is very, very interesting. The swing is actually slightly bigger than it is from the last election than across Great Britain as a whole. And it is very interesting because, as you said, Wales has been Labour since the beginning of time. So let's just talk about the situation in Wales. The Conservatives have essentially slowly built themselves back up again, that they were in total no man's land for many, many years there. But through the Welsh Assembly, their number of MPs has been gradually rising and rising. And there was a poll out this week that suggested they could actually come first. How will that translate into seats, Matt? In order to get 21 of the 40 seats, which would be an overall majority in Wales, they would need about the sort of lead they got at the moment. So that poll that had them 10 points ahead, that's about what they would need. People forget, actually, if you think about the past, in 1997, the Tories were wiped out in Wales, just as they were in Scotland. And whereas they've only very recently come back in Scotland, it's been happening with much more success in Wales. But certainly there are parts of Wales where they are doing pretty well. And Henry obviously begs it place this as well, because much like England, Wales voted to leave the EU and the Conservatives' message of stick with us, we'll make sure your Brexit happens must go down quite well there. Whereas the other parties have just been boxed out in a way. And there's not much Welsh nationalism support either. 
Yeah, it was an opportunity for UKIP, really. They've got people in the Welsh Assembly, all of whom now seem to hate each other. So that's disappointing for UKIP. But, you know, a leave voting area which has grievances against central government, that's a place where a strong UKIP message should penetrate. And indeed, you've got some of the industrial decline that should play into a UKIP narrative around globalisation. So it will be disappointing for them if they can't take a couple of seats in Wales, it looks grim on a nationwide basis. Mm-hmm. And one of the things the Conservatives have often said about Wales Miranda is about the public services there, so that you constantly hear Theresa May saying the NHS under Labour in Wales is a complete disaster. And they've said this for many, many years as an example to say, if you vote for us, we'll protect the economy, more money to spend, etc, etc. Whereas if you just let Labour run it, they make a hash of it. Absolutely. And Labour has the problem of being locally the establishment and the government because Labour has dominated the Welsh Assembly even though it has a form of proportional representation ever since 1999 when it was first set up. Stewardship of the NHS locally has not been a success for Labour. Schools in Wales are doing much worse than elsewhere in the UK because they freed up the curriculum, did all sorts of inverted commas liberal things about teaching, which have been an utter disaster. So yes, Labour is also vulnerable in Wales because it's the party of government for the region. Now let's go to Henry's highlight, which was UKIP's campaign launch. So this election probably came at a pretty bad time for UKIP, Henry, because the party has had real leadership problems. Ever since Nigel Farage left, there's been a vacuum there. A lot of its talent has left. Mark Reckless, who was the MP for Rochester and Stroud, he's now gone. Douglas Carswell, he's now gone. And it's got no major donors left, I don't think. Its membership's been in decline. It really doesn't have a purpose anymore. What was their message at their campaign launch? The message was firstly, we are going to stand in lots of seats because there are rumours that they were going to stand in as few as 100 out of 600. But they're not standing against you as sceptic Conservatives, though. True Brexiteers of any political persuasion was their faith, but they said that would be tens of seats rather than hundreds of seats. I think the key thing for them is to actually win seats. And Paul Nuttall, the leader, was explicit about this today. He said, last time we won 13% of the vote and we only got one out of 650 MPs. Vote share does not matter that much. What matters is concentrating it in certain areas. They've got an opportunity in Hartlepool, an opportunity in Thurrock, South Thanet, where Nigel Farage as well probably looks too difficult because it's Conservative held and doesn't look like there's a strong enough UKIP candidate to win it back. But I don't think it's completely all over. I think if they have strong local campaigns and they come back and they've got a strong UKIP voice in the House of Commons such as Paul Nuttall himself, then we may be having to take them to account during the Brexit process. Matt, what prospect is there of UKIP winning any seats at this election? Because I had thought that Clacton, which was essentially the close thing to their stronghold, that's probably most likely to go Conservative now that Douglas Carswell is standing down. They almost took it at the 2015 election. Those seats that Henry mentioned there, Hartlepool and Thurrock, what are the chances, do you think? They're not that great because depending on which poll you look at, they've lost half, maybe two-thirds of their support. And if you consider that they got one seat last time when they were on almost 13% of the vote, it's going to be very, very hard. Even if that drop of seven or eight points were spread evenly across the country, it would be difficult. But when a party's on a relatively low, relatively concentrated vote share like UKIP is, they can't lose that much of the vote in everywhere because in a lot of places they don't have that because their votes are relatively concentrated in certain places they are going to have to lose more in places where they need it so it will be very very difficult for them 
And I suppose the problem is, Miranda, that their message is very similar to Theresa May. She's adopted a good part of the nationalist sentiment, not certainly as far along the UKIP road as she could go, but she's taken a lot of that. So a lot of natural UKIP voters are actually going to be reunited with the Conservatives. And this split in the British right that has existed for 20 years, which has benefited ultimately the centre-left, looks as if it's going to be healed at this election. That's absolutely right. And as we were discussing in Wales, in those areas where you've got a disenfranchised working class vote in post-industrial areas. That has been very, very fertile ground for UKIP. Theresa May's message, a lot of it, has been crafted carefully to appeal to those areas. Lots of her policies on, for example, skills, on employment, on workers' rights even, she's catering very carefully to a kind of blue-collar Toryism, which is bad news for UKIP. And also, I think, on this point of whether they can pick up seats, Nigel Farage, who was a very successful leader of UKIP, used to say sometimes that he was modelling it on the SDP and then sometimes on the Lib Dems. They've actually ended up being the SDP in a way and bringing the Tory party to them on policies and not been the Lib Dems in terms of careful targeting and actually winning seats. Just to give a counterpoint, I think last time UKIP were victims of, as they saw it, a squeeze where the Conservative message was, this is a really tight election, don't waste your vote on UKIP. This time it's going to be much harder for the Conservatives in the next six weeks to make that case. And the other is that Theresa May has left them some space. She's going to commit to the same level of aid spending as a share of national income. And that means that UKIP can point to a £13 billion budget each year and say, let's spend that on the NHS, let's stop spending it on foreigners. And what about Paul Nutter and the UKIP leader, Henry? It'd be quite surprising for a party to not to stand for Parliament. It's generally the aspirations of political parties to be in Westminster, but he's been very coy about his intentions. He's, he's going to stand, and I think he was in always going to stand. In Boston, Skegness is the suggestion uh, going round. I'm not sure, possibly in Hartlepool. Let's see. I think what this shows is how difficult it is for quite small parties with small machines to get ahead of the news cycle. This is an election that they didn't know was coming. I think a lot of people thought that after... Theresa May had lost the opportunity to roll together the general election and the local elections that it wasn't going to happen this year. And they weren't prepared. And the Lib Dems have also looked a little bit wrong-footed. I think maybe these parties will regain their poise when they're launching their manifestos, when they can talk about their policies. UKIP wants to talk about Islam. Lib Dems want to talk about Brexit. That's their best hope. That's Britain in 2017 for you. Miranda, let's talk about a favourite topic of ours this week, tactical voting, which has appeared on the agenda. And we've seen both Tony Blair, who said that voters should think carefully before they place their ballot, which was a suggestion to vote for your favourite anti-Brexit candidate, while Gina Miller, who brought Brexit to the Supreme Court, has launched this big drive to raise awareness and to push people in an anti-Brexit direction. And then finally, Open Britain, which is the continuity remain campaign, has put out a list of 20 MPs that should be targeted, bizarrely including some Remain MPs. Do you think tactical voting is going to play a bigger role in this election? Will it actually change anything? Well, that is the $60 million question. There is a lot of complicated tactical voting potentially in this campaign as well, because it's not just the Brexit tactical voting, which as you've pointed out, Seb, could cut both ways because if people are very Brexity, they it's might the decide to vote, thing, yeah. vote tactically against a Remain MP as well. But there's also tactical voting in Scotland, of course, on union versus separation. There's the traditional anti-Tory tactical vote temptation in marginal Lib Dem or Labour seats. And there's also potentially a sort of anti-Corbyn tactical vote because Corbyn is such a scary factor for some voters. So it could look very complicated. On these 
anti-Brexit, continuity remain, as you put it, campaigns. I think that they're quite flawed. There are too many of them. Some of the lists that have come out have been quite eccentric. Indeed, Open Britain has fallen out with its Tory participants this week. For targeting because For targeting Conservatives who were actually Remain and has been accused of being a sort of closet Lib Dem operation. So I think the whole thing is quite flawed. But it's worth watching, and partly because there's a lot of money going into it, and there are a lot of powerful business backers who feel very seriously about Brexit being a national danger. And so I would expect them to get a lot more airtime and a lot more support from there. Whether they can actually persuade voters to follow their instructions or not is another matter. I agree with everything Miranda says, Matt, but my perception on this is that at the end of the day, when you get in that final two weeks of vortex, Everything else will fall away and it will be Jeremy Corbyn versus Theresa May. That's how people, I think, often vote in a general election. We saw it last time, it was Ed Miliband, David Cameron, and we saw how that went. When you get into that situation, will all these complicated calculations and whatever matter? Or will people just think, well, who do I want outside Downing Street? I think that's right. I mean, if you look historically, as I've said before, that the strongest predictors of an election result are people's perceptions of leaders and people's perceptions of the parties on the economy. I think that... In terms of tactical voting, pundits can often be at risk of overestimating how much attention the electorate are paying to bar charts and, <laughs> and other sorts, of which there have been numerous examples of varying degrees of sincerity. But, I mean, in terms of tactical voting, it can work at the margins, even if a couple of people in, in any given seat switch based on local considerations that can change seats. There are seats that are closer than that. It certainly has the potential to work in Scotland for the simple reason that you've got a yes vote that's almost entirely behind the SNP and a no vote that's split three ways. And last time there was a lot of attempt at pro-union tactical voting. It mostly failed, but the three seats that the SNP didn't, well, certainly two of them, a lot of it seemed to be down to tactical voting. I suppose the other thing as well is that it feeds this narrative of a coalition of chaos, which the Conservatives are bleating on endlessly about, that even though the party leaders say we won't do a deal, the, you know, Tim Fowler has been very explicit, we will not be going into coalition with Jeremy Corbyn's Conservatives. Every time there is some kind of tactical voting deal or somebody stands out on a local level, it feeds that narrative that this could happen. And it's sort of almost real as if enough that voters can buy into it. It certainly doesn't hurt that narrative, although I think the bigger consideration, as per your earlier point, is simply going to be the fundamentals. It's going to be leadership and perceptions on the economy. Henry, is there much concern in Conservative HQ about the impact of tactical voting? Because they're not particularly worried about Labour at the moment, which this week it's had some policy launch, but I don't think it's really cut through that much. This seems to be the only thing really standing in their way to a massive majority of some sorts. My initial reaction is, is someone in a Range Rover particularly concerned about flies on the windscreen? But I think CCHQ are doing a pretty impressive job. When I watch the BBC News bulletins, Theresa May's message is out there. At one point, the sole question asked her on one of the lead bulletins by the BBC was, how far across the country are you going to win seats? I mean, this is exactly the narrative they wanted to get, that she's the only game in town. The only bump they've had is, and again, this comes back to the manifesto point, is about tax, that we saw that Theresa May again dodged the question of the pension triple lock, and Labour have said they will keep the triple lock, a surprising another spending promise there from the party. Do you think that's going to be anyway vulnerable to those older voters who are natural Conservative supporters? The person who raised this in Parliament was Angus Robertson, the SNP's deputy leader, who really pinned down Theresa May in Prime Minister's questions, and she wasn't able to give a guarantee. Labour have tried this south of the border. They promised at the end of last year to keep the triple lock, and since then their ratings amongst older voters have plummeted, so we can say it hasn't really worked so far. The SNP, it may be the kind of thing they can use against the Tories north of the border. 
Yeah. In terms of older voters, the generation gap between the parties is, I think, as wide as it's ever been. It's hard to get accurate historical records, but it's incredibly wide and it has got wider since the start of the year. I think in terms of the SNP in particular, the parts of Scotland where they're vulnerable to the Tories do have a lot of these older, more traditional types of voters, including Angus Robertson's own seat in Murray, which, let's remember, was 50-50 in the EU referendum. So there's an interesting dynamic with that too. I think on some of these tax dilemmas on the Tory manifesto, it's actually really interesting because in a sense, on the optimistic interpretation, when you've got a very, very dominant governing party likely to win again and increase its majority, they might actually be able to take some rational decisions for once. And one of those is the balance between taxation and the state of the public services. So they may be able to say and do things that the Labour Party could not. Now to Scotland. At the last general election, the Scottish National Party swept up nearly all of the seats, nearly wiped out Scottish Labour, while the Conservatives have remained in the electoral doldrums. But that might all be about to change on June the 8th. The recent opinion post suggested that the Scottish Tories are making a surprising comeback and it might even be able to move beyond just a single MP. The heady heights of three or even six representatives are being discussed. So what's driving this and can the momentum sustain the party through to polling day? David Torrance, you are a great follower and writer on Scottish politics. What's going on with the Scottish Conservatives? Because they were essentially written off as an electoral force. They lost all their seats in 1997 and really struggled to make any headway, both in terms of MPs and in the Scottish Parliament. Then the last round of Scottish Parliament elections, they beat Scottish Labour. What do you think is going to happen now? I think the revival which began to manifest itself at the Scottish Parliament elections last year, you'll remember they got 31 seats, almost double their number before that, and indeed since the Scottish Parliament began in 1999. And basically, we're seeing a continuation of a realignment, a pretty radical realignment of Scottish politics, which began with the independence referendum in 2014. So the traditional cleavages of right and left, class-based politics, ideology are in decline and what we're seeing is a nationalist unionist dynamic. So at the 2015 general election in Scotland, of course, famously, the SNP got 56 seats. That was the sort of nationalist vote manifesting itself. But the unionist response to that took a bit longer to kick in. So it started, as I say, at Hollywood last year. I think it's going to continue with the local government elections next week. Kind of overshadowed now, obviously, but Tories in Scotland are very confident about that. They're talking about between 25 and 30 percent of the vote, which, given their general passing over the past 20 years, is remarkable. And of course, the polling, uh, and we have a YouGov poll now adding to a couple last weekend, showing the Scottish Tories on between 28 and 33 percent. So. That revival is continuing, and basically what's happening is unionist voters from the Labour Party are overturning decades of sort of tribal hostility and are heading to the Conservatives, basically because their historic hatred of the Conservatives is now being trumped by their hatred of the SNP <laughs> and the idea of a second independence referendum. And that's what this is all about, and that's what this election in Scotland is being fought on, the idea of a renewed push for independence. And that's really mobilising unionist voters. The Scottish Conservative message, from what I can see, is basically no thanks, we don't want a second vote. And the public opinion is broadly on their side. The numbers I've seen all suggest that Scottish voters are quite against having another vote on independence. I suppose the question is, 
if the Scottish Conservatives do well, you know, potentially in the local elections, as you said, but then also in the general election, will that do anything to hold the momentum of the SNP who are pushing for a second vote sometime in 2018 or 2019? This is the million-dollar question, I guess. Now, nationalists I speak to maintain that the general election and the outcome, even if there is a Tory revival, doesn't really change the overall situation. And they're probably broadly correct. But the SNP have sustained themselves over the past 10 years on electoral momentum. And of course, they've done very well in elections. But they're going to have a knock in this election, a modest knock, certainly. They're still going to emerge with the lion's share of the Scottish constituencies. But the SNP psychologically isn't used to that. They had a bit of a knock last year as well. They lost their overall majority in the Scottish Parliament. And in that context, you can see 2015 as peak nationalist and peak Nicola Sturgeon. And that's another interesting sort of undercurrent in this uh, modestly waning popularity of the First Minister. But what it does do after June is it makes it a bit harder for them to pursue a second independence referendum. The First Minister has already shelved her planned statement to the Scottish Parliament on the next steps in that regard. And it checks their momentum. It makes it harder for them to argue that Scotland is deeply hostile to the Conservatives. And it makes it harder for them to argue that the Prime Minister's message, as you said, now is not the time. It somehow has offended middle Scottish opinion. There's no evidence of that. The surveys you cite show the contrary, that a majority don't want a referendum anytime soon. And only around 37% back one on the First Minister's preferred timescale. So it doesn't take it off the table, so to speak, but I think it makes it a bit harder less straightforward for Nicola Sturgeon to pursue that once the dust has settled on this election. And how much of this do you think is about personalities north the border? Because you mentioned there that this is being fought by Nicola Sturgeon as opposed to Alex Salmon and what we've seen is that her personal ratings are not doing so well and part of that is due to their domestic record in Scotland and governing Scotland but then you've also on the other side had the rise of Ruth Davidson who's the leader of the Scottish Conservatives. She's a very dynamic figure, very unconservative in a way, when you look at her approach to the media, her personality, and all the rest of it. So really, it's the two of them going head-to-head here. And you have to wonder how much of this revival is the Scottish Conservative brand and how much of this is Ruth Davidson's party. Yeah, it's not really about policy. I'm not so sure that Sturgeon is becoming less popular because of the domestic record. Is um, it just her personally, do you think? Well, no, it's more to do with her association with the push for a second referendum. As I say, that cannot be understated as an important factor in Scottish politics generally and in this election. And Ruth Davison, of course, is associated with the contrary position, resistance to a second referendum and independence. And so that will be a factor. Of course, they're both talented performers and both remain broadly quite popular. But personality is important. And I think that the difficulty Nicola Sturgeon has is that the novelty we associated with the first referendum just isn't there anymore. There was a general consensus a few years ago that Scotland should have a referendum. Even unionists believed that. It was an interesting debate, a lively period. But that dynamic no longer exists. There is a sizable minority who are actively hostile to the idea of another referendum. So when they see Nicola Sturgeon on television or hear her on radio talking about that, naturally they're turned off by that and quite angry. And that's what informs voting intentions. And of course, Scottish Labour, who we've barely mentioned, don't seem to feature in much at all at the moment. They've got one MP as well, and they look like they're going to have a decent fight to hold on to that one seat. And in the local elections, it looks to me as if they're going to do pretty badly in that, and they've just sort of painted entirely out of the picture. 
Yeah, because they've lost their status as the main unionist party in Scottish politics. And I go back to that central point about the unionist nationalist dynamic. Labour are no longer seen as a sort of credible opposition to the SNP and to independence. So Labour fully expected to do very badly in the local government election. And in the general election, they're quite sensibly targeting only three seats, I think, because there's no point in them. That's extraordinary when you think about where they were. Yeah, yeah. Labour is a party which began historically in Scotland. So for them to be in this position is quite remarkable. They're basically now where the Scottish Conservatives were 20 years ago, not just electorally unpopular, almost toxic in electoral terms. And they're simply not taken seriously by most voters. You know, they no longer have a credible voice in the debate, which, as I say, is where the Conservatives found themselves a couple of decades ago. So Labour will do badly. They'll probably hold on to the seat they have at the moment. Ian Murray in Edinburgh South is a very middle-class constituency, ironically. But Ian Murray there will benefit from the same dynamic. Tories will vote for him as the most credible unionist opponent to the SNP. Yes, and I suppose then the question is, does the SNP change its tactics at all, or will it just continue as it has been if it loses, say, a couple of seats here, a couple of seats there? There's also the Liberal Democrats as well, I've sorry, forgot to mention, who seem quite bullish about retaking a couple of their seats north yeah. of the border. Yeah, the Woodlands could have a modest revival, actually. Um, Joe Swinston in Eastham, Bartonshire, perhaps North East Fife and Edinburgh Western. It's not impossible they come out of this election with three or four MPs, which, given their travails in the past few years, I think they'd be very happy with. In terms of tactics, the SNP campaign so far, to my eyes and ears anyway, has not come across as very convincing. It's a bit shrill. It's very retro. It's harking back to lots of 1980s campaigning themes about nasty Tories and Tories inflicting horrible things on Scotland. But it's really a core vote strategy because I think the SNP's very sophisticated polling operation will have detected this realignment as the polls show a revival for the Scottish Conservatives. So they're sort of hunkering down in that respect. But the trouble they have, and this is a broader point beyond the election, is everything the SNP expected to boost support for independence just hasn't. So Brexit was supposed to do that. Polling shows that middle Scottish opinion, perhaps surprisingly, isn't that fast. Theresa May's now is not the time was supposed to anger Scots and boost support. That hasn't happened either. And the other line, the prospect of perpetual Tory rule, again, judging by the opinion polls, that doesn't seem to be having any effect. And so there is a, a longer term problem for the SNP in all of this. Even if they come out of this election, as everyone expects, with high 40s number of seats, they're the winner to speak in Scotland. It's not clear where that leaves a second independence referendum. As I said before, I think it makes it a bit harder. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the general election. In the meantime, you can follow the day-to-day developments with our new election countdown email. Sign up on ft.com. Until then, thank you for listening. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.